When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Welcome to Mom and Dad Are Fighting, Slate's parenting podcast, the Don't Be So Bossy edition. I'm Dan Coyce. I'm the dad of Harper, who is six, and Lyra, who is eight. I'm Allison Benedict. I am the mom of Harry, who is five, Sam, who is three, and Wally, who is one. Hi, Allison. Hey. We're also editors at Slate. Oh, right. Oh, right. Also, we have (laughs) jobs. Uh, So on today's episode, we are going to talk to Todd Balf about his New York Times Magazine story on the new SAT and the reinvention of the college board. And then we will talk about Ban Bossy, Sheryl Sandberg's new initiative to encourage girls to pursue leadership positions. Plus, parenting triumphs and fails, a call-in question about the division of affection in a family, and recommendations. As always, if you've got topics you want us to discuss or questions you want to ask us, please email us at momanddad at slate.com. That's M-O-M-A-N-D-D-A-D at slate.com. Or also, please call and ask us a question. Leave us a message at any time at our phone number, which is 424-255-RUDE. That number, again, is 424-255-RUDE. It is easy to remember because that is what my children are. So, triumphs and fails. Allison, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I feel like I've had a really good run of triumphs. Maybe I'm misremembering, but that's how I choose to see the past mm-hmm. <laughs> couple of months. But I have right. a pretty big fail now. Uh. Um, so as I may have mentioned before, and as probably most parents of kids in elementary school or beyond can relate to, the school sends us like, I don't know, five worksheets every day about various things, permission slips and notices that this is going to happen in the future. And and then also those are paper, you know, paper notices. And then also maybe I would say probably five to eight emails a day, either from the school, the PTA, or the class parent who is just, a, you know, I mean, bless that person. Right. Um, so well, It's like straight up ads. We get ads for like camps and stuff in their folders, too, that somehow they've convinced the school district to send Yeah, them. we get that. We get that as well. So I sort of have a system where it's not a system, it's, <laughs> but uh, a <laughs> non-system system where I read the things that have you know, that matter tomorrow or, you know, the permission slip that needs to be turned in with money, that sort of stuff. And then the other stuff I kind of just like don't deal with. And one of the things I did not deal with was we started getting notices and emails about an upcoming readathon, which was just this vague, what's a readathon? I don't know. It's this vague thing out there in the future. (laughs) Requires you to get sponsors. And we read. Sure, of course we read. But I don't know. It has something to do with timing your reading. Eh. And I just kind of didn't think about it. And then I started hearing people talking about it. It had started. And then I would go to a friend's house and I'd see like charts on their (laughs) refrigerators where they were, you know, marking the time that their kid had. And I just sort of la 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 anyway congratulations to our neighbor cyrus who won the readathon uh, at the school and also congratulations to my son harry's kindergarten class who triumphed and won the readathon for all the kindergarten five kindergarten classes in his school miraculously without one family participating ours so my, my son was like mom we won the readathon what's the readathon so we read we read. I'm sure if we have timed, if we had timed it, we would have 
kicked ass. We'd have killed everyone in that school. But anyway, That's fail. Sorry. Spectacular. Yeah. Totally spectacular. Yeah. Uh, I have a triumph, though not as spectacular Good. a triumph as your fail was, a spectacular fail. Um, uh, we revised our morning schedule in a way that has made everything a lot better. Okay. So mornings are terrible, right? Um, yes. Yes, for everyone. Uh you know, both my kids are very pokey getting up and they're very pokey eating breakfast and they are pokey going to the bathroom and getting dressed and brushing their teeth. And the whole time I'm just standing there like, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. You're going to miss your bus. Hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And I am like angry and they get angry. And the big problem was that it was Lyra, my oldest, who basically just wants to read the whole time, right? Um, not even in a readathon scenario. She just wants to read <laughs> all the time. And so she would like read while she was eating and then she, and then I would like bug her to finish her food and she wouldn't want to because that would mean she would have to stop reading because you can't read while you brush your teeth, not easily. Um, and then I would like yell at her and this was like every single morning and I would be angry at them and angry at myself and they would be angry at me and then they would go to school and then I would like boil about it for like an hour. Oh, I thought you were going to say then you would feel so bad that you left them, you saw them after school in anger. No, no, no. <laughs> well, I mean, I would be angry at myself, but angry at them. I would just be angry about the whole thing. Yeah. Like, I felt bad and, and angry and mean and stupid, whatever. So, finally, I realized it seems like I'm using the stick of yelling at them a lot, which doesn't work. But maybe instead I should try the carrot of reading, right? So, I told Lyra, okay, so tomorrow morning you will be able to sit there at the table and eat and read Right up until the moment we walk out the door and I won't say a single word to you or try and get you to speed up or anything, all you have to do is get dressed and brush your teeth first. Great idea. And that it totally worked. She got up. She brushed her teeth. She got dressed. She sat down. She ate like one piece of toast over the course of 40 minutes and read uh, like three books and she was so happy and um, mornings are like a million times better. I think that's a huge triumph until they discover another delay tactic. Yes, that is true. <laughs> also, they're going to school every day now with cereal milk all over their clothes. <laughs> but whatever, it's worth it. Okay. All right, so let's start out with our first topic. In this week's New York Times Magazine, Todd Balfe writes about the dramatic changes made at the college board by new president David Coleman. Chief among those changes is the revamped SAT, but as the article makes clear, that's only part of Coleman's ambitious view of how the college board can make higher ed more equitable and reachable for all. Todd is on the phone with us from the streets of London to talk about the piece and about the new SATs in the College Board. Thanks for joining us, Todd. Thanks for having me. I think for a lot of our listeners, the item of most immediate interest, obviously, will be the changes to the SAT, which are going to take hold in the spring of 2016. But there's a lot more to it than just making the essay section optional and bringing the scoring back to a 1,600-point scale. Todd, how how is the SAT going to measure achievement differently than before? Well, I think achievement is kind of the key word, right? I mean, the SAT is, is uh, the, the A in SAT is aptitude, and they're moving away from that orientation, which has always been a puzzle to pretty much everybody. Or what kind of a test is this? Is it about, is it an IQ test, an intelligence test? Is it a, somewhere in between an intelligence test and an achievement test? And they've, they've pretty much said, okay, no more fooling around. We're, we are an achievement test based on high school curriculum, that, and we're going to give you a transparent test, no, no games, no gotchas. Uh, it's is straightforward, and, uh, and that's, that's the plan, and that's a, a difference in you know, where they've been in the past for certain. 
And the reasons behind this are what? Well, you know, I think, A, you have a a new person in charge. You have David Coleman, um, who's sort of an outsider, you know. I mean, even though he's uh, associated with uh, education and innovation and education, he's, he's, he's new to the college board. And, I, you know, I think he kind of comes in with an outsider's viewpoint, like I've heard a lot of things, and some of them are not so great. And, uh, um, you know, what if we do something about it? And I think that's, that's one thing. I think the other part of that is, you know, I think anybody who looks at the college board says uh, there's, there's some, you know, there's some real problems. Uh, you know, I think the way parents view the college board, which is just like we just keep forking money over to the college board to, you know, to pay for this and to pay for that um, on a test that our kids <laughs> generally get slammed on and, we, you know, and, and, and a test that requires, uh, for a lot of people, expensive test prep. Um, so there's just a lot of, and the college board itself has always been a pretty inaccessible institution. And I, and I think if you look at this in strictly sort of in the business perspective, it kind of makes sense. Like, you know, the, the college board is sort of under the gun. It has a very healthy rival in the ACT, which is the other, you know, main college admissions test. And so this is, you know, and in one viewpoint, this is kind of a rebranding. One thing that was really interesting from the piece, and I definitely encourage all of our listeners to read this piece, which is fascinating, is how fast Coleman has been able to make all these changes. Is that just sheer force of personality? Or has have, has everyone at the college board been waiting for someone to come in and change the way the test and the board itself operates? Yeah, it does feel that way. I mean, I, I don't know. You know, I mean, I think, um, you know, there have been pretty pretty damning exposés over the years about the college board and the, and the leadership of the college board. And, you know, I mean, you, you just get a sense from even being in their offices with some of the folks there that there is sort of a, a, a feeling like this is a different style of leadership. Um, you know, and I, it's not to say, it's not to paint this as, you know, all, all tremendous. We don't know really the result of this form of leadership and how far he can go in being, you know, I mean, he's sort of a, an educational disruptor. You know, he just he comes in and he's done this before at the high school curriculum level with the Common Core, um, but he comes in and he's got some ideas and he and and you know he's given he's been given some freedom to to do what he wants to do and do it on an in an accelerated way. I think most people who have done any kind of business with a college board, any kind of teachers or admissions professionals know that things happen very, very slowly at the college board, if they happen at all. So this is a very different different scene at the moment. And, you know, it's sort of, uh, it'd be in- it's going to be interesting to, to follow it, to see whether, you know, um, it, it is able to continue in this, in this vein. In that spirit, if you're a parent whose kid is taking the last old test, in 2015, should you be pissed off? Like, what should you do? <laughs> I have talked to a few of those, and you know, and instead of the reaction being, oh, you know, finally, you know, an SAT test that makes sense and you know is based on the curriculum and an essay that isn't a joke, and you know, it's more of, oh my God, I have something new. How am I going to deal with this as a parent with a kid who's <laughs> you know a sophomore or junior in high school? So. There's going to be that reaction for sure, like something new, anything new. I mean, we kind of all know what this SAT test is is in some ways for good or for bad and how to, you know, if you have the money and you have the resources, how to game it. So I think there is that element of, 
you know, of, of the unknown, which always is, is fearful. But I think, you know, I, I knew, you know, they've been hearing some of that criticism already. And for instance, the Khan Academy, uh, which is going to partner with them as a resource for SAT prep, is also going to partner not just in 2016 for the new SAT, but for the current one as well. So I think that's one way that they've responded to that to that fear. And the Khan Academy, which you just which you mentioned, is is now in, entering into a partnership with the College Board, as you detail in your piece, to um, provide free tutoring uh, for kids whose you know parents aren't going to go out and pay for these Princeton Review classes or hire a private tutor. And the hope is the changes that he's making are not just actually changes to the content of the test, but are attempting to to level the playing field. Still, right. if a kid comes from a school where the teachers are not good and they're not learning about sort of, you know, like these these uh, foundational texts that are going to be that are going to be in the new SAT. Those kids are still screwed. And I think, you know, there's and Coleman knows this, it seems like, from your piece. And this is just, you know, a problem that he can't address. I mean, this these changes. Well, can't yeah, fix I mean, I think they're right. I mean, and I think there is there is. <laughs> Um, I mean, this is a, a terrible word for it, but a phrase, but I mean, sort of this collateral damage idea where you've started something new and whether that's been the common core and at the high school level where you now have a new assessment test that every high, you know, high school kids in 40 different states are going to take and prepare for. And those first kids who are hitting that test, are, they don't do, you know, uh, you know percentage-wise, they don't do great. They eventually do great. You know, if it's given three, four, five years to sort of grow into, but it's it's not really uh, so. There's a I think there's a lot of moving parts here. There's there's the question of how can high school curriculum uh, step up, and and do we have the money, if, uh, you know, and the will on a national level to see that happen, and you know, so this is this is one change. He describes it as a nudge. And I think that's pretty apt in some ways because, you know, there's so many things that are dependent on creating a level playing field. And, you know, with the Common Core still in play, with teacher assessment happening right now and very controversial, um, you have a lot of things changing at the high school level. And so um, Khan Academy is a good idea, um, but how good an idea is yet, yet, you know, we're yet to see because really the, the, the primary users of Khan Academy are upper middle class or middle class kids who have teachers who are hip to Khan Academy as a resource. And that means a lot of kids don't even know about it. One last question for you. One of the things that really struck out and stuck out in the piece for me was this initiative, yet another initiative that Coleman got to happen really fast of the college board sending out 100,000 tickets, quote, you know, tickets, ticket modeled pieces of paper to high achieving low income students, urging them to apply to schools that they might otherwise have thought of as like stretch schools. Is there right. any sense yet of how that initiative has worked out or do we not know anything yet? We don't know anything yet, or at least they're not releasing anything yet. I mean, we sort of pushed on that front, and, and they um, said that really, you know, the first wave of results are sort of coming in, and, you know, they have reason to be optimistic, but what does that mean? Really, I don't, I don't know, and I, we can't say at this point. But they're aware that, you know, they're going to have to show that this idea works, that, you know, you, you identify, you go to some trouble to identify 
low-income, high-achieving kids, you put in front of them the path as clearly as possible with, you know, and, and you hope that they take advantage of that and there's support for that. And again, there has to be support at the high school level or the guidance counselors and things like that who, who are aware of what's possible and what the research shows with these type of kids who have opportunities to go pretty much anywhere they would want or, you know, in, 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 you know, in the country as far as a university or college goes. And yet, you know, the research shows that a large percentage of kids don't, you know, don't take that opportunity. So, I mean, I think from the college board's perspective, this is a, you know, it's a smart opportunity for them to latch on to and to try to make some movement on. And, uh, you know, and I, I think whether they can do that or not, again, is, 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 we'll see what happens. All right. Thank you so much, Todd, for talking to us. Thanks, Todd. Listeners, it was a great piece. Great. Thanks for having me. Listeners, we want to hear from you, too. So email us at slate.com to tell us what you think of these changes, whether you're excited about your kids taking a change test, whether you're one of the 2015 families whose kids have to take the old test one last time. We'd love to hear from you. Dan, are you excited quickly? Yes. I mean, it seems like these are great changes, and it seems like the test is going to be testing exactly what I would want a test like this to test. Yeah, but maybe I'm that's because I think my kids will be good at it. So, <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, let's go to our call in question. Remember, if you have a question, please give us a call at any hour of any day and leave us a message at 424 255 RUDE. That number again, 424 255 RUDE. Our question this week comes from listener Mark in the Bay Area. Take it away, Mark. Hi, Allison and Dan. This is Mark. My question relates to the idea of anchor parents. So my wife and I fit the profile of high investment parenting. We both have good full-time jobs that keep us busy, and we're just as invested in being parents who split the demands of raising our two boys who are aged eight and five. Basically, our schedules give us the flexibility to be very egalitarian in sharing the duties of raising our kids. We alternate back and forth between the major responsibilities, making dinner, helping with homework, getting up in the middle of the night when they cry, so on. It's been like this pretty much since the first day we had kids, and it really works well for us. Well, much to our dismay, despite this egalitarian approach, the kids demonstrate a clear preference for me, their dad, calling out for me in the middle of the night, choosing to cuddle with me when both parents are available, generally preferring me to mom whenever there's an option. You can imagine how this makes my wife feel, and I have to say it's no picnic for me either. So a friend of mine who raised five kids told me not to sweat it, that for whatever reasons, I may simply be the anchor parent to my kids right now, but that will likely shift back and forth between the two of us as each of these guys gets older. My question is, do either of you have experiences being the anchor parent in your families? And how do you deal with the mixed emotions that entails in yourself and in your partners? Thanks a lot. That is a good question. Thank you, Mark. Um, so I have experience with this, but in the uh, in the converse, I suppose, which is that I have not generally been the anchor parent in our family. Alia, my wife, has been the anchor parent, uh, although I would say less so now. Um, but it is it is super frustrating to not be the one that they always go for. But there are exceptions to that. And kids learn that there are certain parents to turn to for certain things. And so there were many years where, for whatever reason, I was the one who they would call for in the middle of the night. So I was the one who would stumble out of bed at like two in the morning and deal with them all the time. Um, and, I, you know, I read up on this a little bit when that was happening and I read up on it a little bit when I was feeling 
when my feelings were getting hurt because they wanted their mom at all other hours of the day that weren't two in the morning. Um, and I mean, your friend who has five kids is right. This is almost certainly a phase that they will come out of at different times in their lives. Um, there are things you can do to help as well, you know, and the main thing that I would suggest is to take a look at not just how evenly you and your wife are splitting the time of child raising, but how evenly you are splitting sort of the emotional duties of child raising. For a long time, I think Alia and our family was the anchor parent. And one reason was that we tended to dole out discipline and punishment somewhat unevenly and that I often played bad cop and she often played good cop. Um, and that I think led the kids in many ways to attach to her in, in a way that then made me feel bad later. And so I am just trying to play bad cop less often, and she is trying to play bad cop a little more often, and I think that that helps a lot. Allison, have you been the anchor parent? I've been both. I mean, during my pregnancies, I'm not the anchor parent. (laughs) No, I mean, which is good, but certainly I I think I've noticed that although I agree that the kids sort of in some ways manipulate, they can figure out, you know, who they should go to and who should they rely on based on who's the who's the disciplinarian and I am much softer than my husband is and so I am generally the anchor parent but I think when they when they spend more time with any parent um, that parent becomes the anchor parent so during my pregnancies when my husband was kind of doing everything with the older kids he was then he then quickly became the one that they depended on yeah um, and I think even now like I can I see that if my husband and my you know and Harry if go out for a day and do like a boys thing on their own then for a couple of days after that like harry actually becomes more attached to him it seems even small things like that and i think you're right that that's about kind of the emotional connection versus the how much you know if the time is is completely evenly split Um, it's hard to be on either side of the equation i think it's inevitable i think it i think it seesaws it goes back and forth and the kids are never you know we're so focused on co-parenting all of us you know 2014 working parents uh, and or any parents, but um, the kids aren't, you know, thinking about how to evenly divide their affections. They're just doing what feels good and right, and right. what they and sometimes what they can get the most out of. So I wouldn't sweat it. And, and the other thing that helps um, is as as Allison noted. I mean, if one parent gets a bunch of time alone all of a sudden with the kids, that really can dramatically change that equilibrium in, in, in many ways. And so, I mean, I would actually recommend, honestly, if if you are interested, Mark, in trying to change this in in the short term as opposed to just sort of waiting it out, uh, giving your wife a little more time alone with the kids is helpful. And so seriously, you can be like, sorry, honey, I got to go out for a beer with friends. It's better and, for you and, and the kids. And rest assured that you are helping <laughs> your wife build a relationship with the kids. But just prepare, be prepared for her to do that to you when, every, when they inevitably shift back to her because yeah. it will definitely happen. Thank you, Mark. Thanks. So once again, if you have a question, um, listeners, give us a call at 424-255-RUDE. We would love to hear from you. All right. On to our second topic. This week, Facebook COO and lead-in mastermind Sheryl Sandberg launched a new initiative with Anna Maria Chavez, the CEO of the Girl Scouts, to ban the word bossy. When a little boy asserts himself he's called a leader, reads their website, banbossy.com. Yet when a little girl does the same, she risks being branded bossy. Words like bossy, they write, send a message, don't raise your hand or speak up. By middle school, girls are less interested in leading than boys, a trend that continues into adulthood. Together, we can encourage girls to lead, pledge to ban bossy. And a whole bunch of powerful women have taken this pledge, from Beyonce to Condoleezza Rice. So, 
Dan, you are the father of two girls, both of whom I actually met last week. One that I would probably call bossy if the word weren't banned. <laughs> are you taking this pledge? I am not taking this pledge. Why are you not? Um, I feel that the pledge applies particularly badly to my family. And I also think that the program misrepresents in some ways what the real problems are stopping girls from growing up into women who uh, achieve and pursue leadership positions. Like, I don't know that just the word bossy is really the number one thing facing it. But let me start with my family. So, Allison, you met Lyra Mm -hmm. last week. Um, You uh, Just to tell everyone what happened, I brought the kids into the New York office last week because we were up in New York for a visit. And um, Lyra marched into Allison's office having just met her and then sat there for like maybe 20 minutes just basically pitching ideas. <laughs> pitching ideas, but also um, she handed me a pad and a, and a pen and said, you should probably take notes. <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, Lyra, as you can tell from that, does not lack for self-esteem. Um, and, uh, and so we spend a lot of time um, encouraging her more or less – basically to please not be quite so bossy. Not because um, we, uh, we, she is the victim of gender assumptions and not because we are nipping her ambitions to be a leader of human beings in the bud um, and not because she has executive leadership skills, which is something that Sheryl Sandberg says in her parade story this week um, that is okay to say about boys according to Sheryl Sandberg but not okay to say about girls. Um, she, Lyra is just a kid who believes, as I see many kids in her grade to believe at her particular school, that her ideas are the best and she will not listen to other people's ideas. And she thinks that any compromise uh, is a sign that she is not being true to herself. And she has a lot of trouble making friends as a result. Um, And it makes her miserable that she doesn't have more and better friends. And it makes us sad that she doesn't and that she feels strongly about it. And so we talk to her a lot about how friendship and, in fact, leadership is not simply being assertive and telling people what to do, but compromising and communicating and listening and doing all the things that I hope both the children of America and the future leaders of America will learn how to do. But the real problem right now is literally that Lyra is bossy. And so we would like her to be a little bit less bossy, honestly. I think, you know, so the, the part of the problem that they're trying to address is is what you, you know, you were just talking about with leadership skills and that and that bossy is applied more frequently to young girls than young boys, which I buy. But I do think I don't think a boy who is bossy is is called a, a leader. He's called something else. He's called a bully. You know, I think there are we we have words that mean certain things. Right. And I'm not I don't I, I don't think there's any reason to first of all, it doesn't fix anything. No and it's not going to work. But also I'm not I'm not in favor of any kind of like of word policing. My mom was a very bossy kid and the uh Kids called her, her friends called her Little Hitler. Um, So (laughs) bossy seems better than that. But, okay, there are problems we have to address in terms of girls dropping out of math and science paths. Yes, Yes. girls have confidence issues, but girls are also thriving in school. They're getting better grades than boys. In many towns, as our colleague Hannah Rosen illustrated in her book, uh, it's the young men who have the confidence issues. And, you know, Every kid who spends his or her time telling other kids what to do is in for it, and I think should be. I don't. I don't. I don't want to be so precious about it. I also think um, 
you know, Stanberg and Chavez had an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal introducing the initiative. And at the end, they quote the anchor Nora O'Donnell, who apparently says that the next time you hear a girl called bossy, you should smile, take a deep breath and say, that girl's not bossy. She has executive leadership skills. But I, is there Do any, not say that. Well, right. Obviously, don't say that. But also, <laughs> is there any proof that girls or boys, for that matter, who like to tell other kids what to do when they are young turn out to have executive leadership skills or will grow up to be great bosses? I mean, there are plenty of aggressive, jerky, douchebag guys who are bosses. And I wouldn't want to see aggressive, jerky, douchebag, douchebag boys allowed to be that way because they're thought to have executive leadership skills. Right. Just because that's... Sheryl Sandberg was a bossy girl growing up and then turned into a boss does not mean that's that's the path. Right. I mean, I do. I would... Man Bossy obviously has its heart in the right place. And there are aspects of this campaign that I think are very important. The idea in general of encouraging assertiveness and leadership in girls who are otherwise having trouble expressing it, I think is incredibly important. But I would really love it if this campaign, for example, emphasized what I think really are actual true executive leadership skills like creative thinking or problem solving or cooperation or compromise. Those are all things that I hope the executive leaders of America of the future will be able to do, male or female. But then also, it seems to me that the problems that are keeping women out of leadership roles have less to do, at least in a certain socioeconomic class, with a lack of self-esteem in young childhood and more to do with things that happen later in life, right? The way that teen girls get squashed in a lot of ways in this in this society, uh, the way the treatment of teen girls changes from when they were little to when they become teens, the lack of child care and leave and support for working moms, the inflexibility of the modern workplace. So, you know, these three these three women who I read about in Parade, um, Condoleezza Rice, Sheryl Sandberg, and Ana Maria Chavez, who introduced this, in, you know, they all introduced this program across multiple platforms this weekend. But so they give lip service in this story to investing in girls from low-income households. It's worth noting that Lean In has so far, not entirely at its own fault, but has so far been heavily associated with a certain kind of already ambitious upper middle class professional woman, often white. Um, And I would love it if in addition to or in place of this band bossy uh, program – that I would love to see the organization go after more systemic problems and inequality than just the words that we use to describe our definitely bossy children. I totally agree. Totally agree. I mean, a lot of the sort of pushback to this campaign, including ours in Slate by Katie Waldman, is arguing that instead we should reclaim the word bossy. All of this seems silly to me. I mean, you know, Katie's great. I loved her post. But, you know, to make bossy a positive, I just think instead we should just <laughs> do things that matter. I mean, this, right. this, this initiative <laughs> and all the money being poured into it and getting Beyonce to sign on. And it just seems really silly. And, you know, I'm, again, I'm not the mother of, of girls, um, but I'm, I'm the mother of a pretty bossy boy. And, uh, you know, I, I, this seems misguided. I asked Lyra, um, who in her school is bossy, and she named a couple of girls. But then she also said, and also, like, about three quarters of the boys are really bossy. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know that this is actually a gendered term among at least the third grade cohort at Jamestown Elementary. Any parents at Jamestown who are listening, I'm not talking about your son. Yeah, this seems pretty. I mean, I'm sure that it's still. I I don't. Argue, I I bet that it still is to some degree, but I think probably in Cheryl Sandberg's day in elementary school, it was it was a lot worse. Yes. And this seems rooted in that instead of in something you know in things that matter now. Right. So, listeners, we want to hear from you. 
Um, please email us at momanddad at slate.com to tell us what you think of Ban Bossy. Also, tell me why I am a terrible parent for calling my daughter Bossy on a radio show. Um, but yes, please email us, momanddad at slate.com. So, recommendations. Uh, I will start this time. Okay. Um, our producer, Chris Wade, told me um, about a children's theater company that he's involved with, Story Pirates. Um, and as it happened, we were coming up to New York last weekend so that uh, Lyra could pitch some ideas to Allison. And um, we went <laughs> to see the show this weekend. The show was at the Drama Bookshop on West 40th, and we all loved the Story Pirates, every single one of us, kids and adults, all the families we went with. Everyone loved it. Chris, our producer, played a ketchup bottle and an elephant and a toilet. Um, he did really well. The show is not a pirate-themed show, despite its name. Instead, what Story of Pirates do is they do in-school programs in which they travel to schools in the New York and L.A. area, but also around the country. And they talk to kids and and help kids develop the stories that they have invented into small theatrical performances, like seven or eight-minute theatrical performances done by adults. And so kids get the sort of excitement of creating a story and then seeing it come to life, um, and story pirates get free material from children who are too young to understand about charging royalties. Uh, it all works out great for everyone. Um, they do shows in New York City. They do shows in L.A. They also tour all over the country. There's a link on their website for people who want to bring story pirates to their school, which Lyra, needless to say, has talked of like nothing other than since story pirates, since she saw story pirates this weekend, they're Totally delightful. Please visit their website at storypirates.org. I'm so excited. I'm definitely going to come and see it soon. Okay. My recommendation, I can maybe feel that this is not an okay recommendation. I'm just not sure. I'm not sure how everyone's going to judge this one. But I I, I think one of my recommendations. <laughs> is it like grain alcohol for children? <laughs> no. Uh, I Early on in the podcast, I recommend in, in an earlier episode of the podcast, I recommended White Fang. And what I didn't realize is that we were reading sort of a slightly modified version of White Fang to our kids. It's part of this series of books called Classic Starts, which mm-hmm. are classic stories retold uh, to appeal to second to fourth graders. Um, or they say, you know, sort of older, reluctant readers, kids who um, are reading to themselves and, and need whatever, a little bit of help. So the books have, I guess they have taken, have changed some of the words and taken maybe some of the scarier stuff out. I can't, I never, I've never, I had never read White Fang before, so I don't know what was out and what was included, but um, they also have things like pictures every couple of pages, sometimes in color. Uh, So I am really pro this, I think. We've been reading a lot of these. There's Anne of Green Gables and Little Women and Black Beauty and all these great old books, The Call of the Wild that I never read when I was young. And so far, you know, they're all hits with our kids. I think they're pretty fantastic. I don't feel that they seem dumbed down. Again, like I don't have anything to compare them to. But the pictures really help every few pages with the, with the kids of my age, at least. Even my, you know, three-year-old is into them. I don't think he'd be into one that didn't have pictures. So anyway, I'm just recommending these Classic Starts books. I don't know. Maybe they're horrible and they're taking all of the, you know, darkness out of children's books. And you guys can write in and tell me if that's the case. But I've, I like them and my kids like them. I'm sure that there are listeners who find this annoying. I am not, I am not one of them. I am firmly in the camp of anything that you are reading is great. And if kids get super excited about classic stories, even in a slightly modified edition i am thrilled totally thrilled good so, I feel better <laughs> good job so that's our show thanks everyone for listening please email us at mom and dad at slate.com to suggest topics or recommend books or guests or whatever and once more if you've got a question please give us a call we'll be happy to try and answer it on the air you can call at any time and leave a message uh, at our mailbox at 424-255-RUDE that number again 
424-255-RUDE. So if you enjoy this podcast and you're not already subscribed, please subscribe to the Slate Daily Podcast or to our particular feed. You can find it in iTunes by searching for Slate Mom and Dad. Um, Please leave a comment while you're there. That helps other people find the show. Um, And please recommend it to your friends. We'd love to uh, have all your friends listening to us so you can all argue um, over coffee over whether Allison is a terrible mom. (laughs) Our producer is Ketchup Bottle Wade. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Andy Bowers. Thank you, Allison. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for listening.